Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. This is episode number 13, if you're scoring at home. And while this podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is truly for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Remember, the Quadcast is your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. Let me first say a hearty thank you to everyone who listened to last week's show. I had over 280 folks download the episode, which is the second highest amount I've had to date. And I need to truly thank all who reached out to me on the Facebook, haha, with such amazingly kind things to say about the Quadcast concept, the anniversary edition itself, my bestest buddies who joined in on the fun, and me. I even had an old friend threaten to text me now because I shared my cell number in the intro. We shall see about that. Oh, and if you're wondering, there is still no correspondence from Chris Harrison, but I'll keep you posted. All kidding aside, I want you to know that I am humbled that you like what you're hearing, and I love the feedback, good and bad. Before we get started with today's festivities, I wanted to give you all a brief update on what the kid has been up to. While 2020 has been a disaster for the entire world, the pandemic lockdown has been rather rough on me too. Because of the level of my injury, my vital lung capacity is diminished to begin with, and so I fit into one of the high-risk demographics. So, from mid-March until probably mid-June or so, I practically did not leave my house. Aside from curbside pickup runs to the Short Hills Pharmacy and just rides around town listening to some music for some mental floss, as I call it, I've been hunkered down at home. And unfortunately, because I have not been able to get out and about, my body has really taken a hit. I am back in OT and PT three days a week, trying to kickstart things, because sitting around for a few months is not ideal for someone with compromised mobility. I have gotten deconditioned, and this is rough. About the only bright side of the lockdown is that it has saved me from having to say no to any and all invites to meet my friends out. The real reason would be that I am struggling to get around like I used to. This is why I'm back in OT and PT, and due to the tireless work of my awesome PTs Liz Caputo, Karen Baig, and the great Maureen Pfeiffer, and my OTs Alyssa Atanasio, Monica Descupta, and Dave O'Brien, I am hopefully getting stronger and more confident in who I am and what I can still do. At least that is the hope, but keep your fingers crossed. With that out of the way, let's turn our attention to this week's program. For those of you who had the opportunity to listen to my interview with Adria D. Simone, Kessler Institute's vocational resource facilitator, you heard about what it is like to get back to work following a spinal cord injury. However, what does it take to go back to school after a life-altering accident? I, for one, don't know whether I could have done that. Aside from the social aspect and not being able to fully take part in that, I'm not sure I would have even wanted to go back to the classroom and all that it would encompass. I just think that it would have been so hard for me, from note-taking, to flipping pages in books, to researching topics in the library, to writing papers, the whole process seems like it would have been a real bear for me. 
I first spoke with this week's guest, Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson, on the telephone seven or eight years ago. I was asked to take part in a study he was overseeing, the purpose of which was to determine the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of treatment with medication, dalfampridine, in combination with locomotor training in persons with chronic motor-incomplete spinal cord injuries. Yikes, say that ten times fast, haha. <laughs> in layman's terms, I was asked to take a pill once a day for as long as the study lasted, and then walk with and without assistance on a treadmill. I did not know whether I was getting the medication or a placebo, and I still do not know to this day. I remember Dr. Trevor as being soft-spoken and rather assuring, because I was a bit apprehensive and I peppered him with many questions. He put my mind at ease in the night before I was looking forward to the challenge. What I am always impressed with and I'm grateful for are doctors who are trying to make the life of those in the disabled community better, in some form or fashion, so I was eager to meet Dr. Trevor. When we did meet and I saw that he was wheelchair-bound and therefore a member of this community, my respect and admiration for him went through the roof. When we get back from this brief commercial timeout, it will be my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. Welcome back to the Quadcast. As always, you can find us by logging on to our website, which is www.quadcast.org, and you can find the show on one of the following podcast hosts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcast, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you sign into any one of them and click subscribe, you will be alerted once a new episode is in the books. And now let's welcome in my friend, the aforementioned Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson. Thank you, doctor, for carving out some time for me and welcome to the show. Glad to be here, John. Thanks for inviting me. Well, one question that I like to ask all of my guests, because, you know, we know that these spinal cord injuries do not define who we were and who we are, is tell me a little bit about yourself before that. Where did you grow up, grow up and what were some of the things that you like to do as a young man? Sure, sure. Well, I grew up, I'm originally from upstate New York, or at least that's really where I grew up, uh, central New York little town called Marathon, New York, uh, about 50 miles south of Syracuse, uh, and not that far from Ithaca, New York. And so, in fact, we're a marathon's distance from Ithaca. <laughs> and uh, it was, 
So I grew up on a farm. Uh, the town I grew up in, it was only about a thousand people, pretty small town. So you pretty much knew everyone. Um, we had a farm, a, a big farm with, uh, with beef cattle. Um, we had moved up from Maryland and so we had brought the cattle with us and, uh, one, one upstate New York, uh, winter and we, we decided to sell the cattle <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, uh, we would, we ended up rent, we would rent the, the barns and the land to people. And so, but, but it was nice because, you know, we still, we still had other animals. So I was being the youngest, I was kind of the one responsible for, taking care of the chickens and the ducks and the geese and, and those kinds of things. So, you know, it kind of taught me responsibility and hard work, um, during the summers, uh, because all my friends pretty much, you know, I was surrounded by people who had dairy farms. A lot of my friends were children of dairy farmers and they had to work the farm. I mean, that's, Kind of how it was. You. That's why you had kids. <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> you needed uh, cheap labor. Cowpokes, so, right? Uh, so anyway, we. Uh, I would help them, uh, and then during the summers, I would help them with bailing and you know doing all those things. You know when the crops are coming in. So it was. It was great. Uh, you know, put a little money in my pocket. Um, so. So, uh, so, you know, so I, you know, I enjoyed doing that, believe it or not. Yes. Uh, you know, cause, cause I didn't have to do it every day. Like my friends did. Right. So I was getting up at four or five o'clock in the morning to milk the cows before I then went to school. Right. Did you ever so, think, that, uh, did you ever think that maybe uh, a farmer's life, like the old Green Acres song, Green Acres is the place to be, farm living is the life for me? Never. Did you ever? No. Never. Okay. Never. I, I love having a farm. You know, I love. I love uh, I love having animals. I mean, we we had border collies. We we were raising uh, border collie sheepdogs, and so I was as a young man, as a young kid, I grew up. Uh, those were my companions because yeah, we were in the middle of nowhere. Right. So you know, that's the, I spend more time you know playing with the, the dogs and stuff like that, and doing other things um yes so you know because you know i wasn't i didn't grow up in like the suburbs or have friends right nearby you were in out so, in the sticks I, I have a feeling absolutely <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> wow so, this is amazing. Nope. I know I spoke earlier uh, in my one of my episodes with the great Dr. Kirschblum, and he, as a young man before he found his way into medicine, was fixing coffee machines. And so, you know, here you are, you know, tending to chickens and working dairy farms. This is a, a theme I'm, I'm sensing here. Yeah. No. Well, you know, it, it teaches how to it teaches you how to be, you know, to to be self reliable. You know, I mean, the people I grew up around. You know, you you did your own car man maintenance. You, you know, that's how you you bought a car. You bought a beater, and then you would fix it up, yes. right? Or you would, you know, and then you would try to maintain it yourself. And so, those are all very useful traits. You know, working on the house. You know, friends of mine. You know, you 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 don't hire contractors. You do. You build. You put your own deck on. You 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 add your own. You renovate your own house. And so, again, I would. Uh, I, I would help 
I would help my friends' families doing that, and it would be a great way for me to learn no how doubt. to do them. Self-reliance, that's the way to go. You, If you Absolutely. need to get something done, you do it yourself. How about exactly. when, did, uh, when did a career in medicine sort of first start rolling around sure. in your head? Yeah, I know. So I, I didn't think about medical school until I was actually in college. Uh, early on, I had thought about vet school. Um, so being a veterinarian, uh, cause I liked animals so much. Um, but then, you know, later on, one of my true passions was, uh, was, uh, snorkeling and scuba diving. My, my mom was originally from Long Island, uh, North Shore, Long Island. And we would go down and spend summers down on North Shore, Kenya on the beaches. So I would spend as much time as I could in the water you know, all day swimming around, puttering around the, the harbor. And uh, and so I kind of wanted to be a marine biologist. So that's, that's you know, that's what I, my goal was first when I went to college. And so that's why where I went to college at University of California in Santa Barbara. So uh, that was quite a change going from, you know, uh, central New York, uh, to uh, Southern California, where the campus is right on the beach, was yeah. quite quite an experience. Nice. So, uh, but it was great. I mean, and uh, it was while there that uh, you know I, I realized that you know what maybe maybe a career in marine biology is not what it's cracked up to be. And uh, I had been an athlete in high school. Uh, I really enjoyed kind of sports medicine things. And so I started working as a volunteer in the student clinic, you know, taping ankles, helping out with those kinds of things. And uh, started thinking about physical therapy, you know, maybe, hey, PT school. Um, I graduate, I have a marketable skill, and I can get paid instead of being a student. Yeah. And then my dad was like, well, you know, why not consider uh, going into medicine, being a, a rehab doctor or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and it was like that, that was the first time I ever thought about it. Uh, you know, and I, I looked at people who were pre-med in my class and they were real kind of gunner types and, you know, stressed out. And yeah. I was, I just didn't need that. Right. Although Santa Barbara, it was a much more laid back experience, even with the pre-meds. No doubt. So, but you know, I mean, I, I had good grades. Uh, I did really well on the medical school tests, the, 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 the MCATs, the aptitude tests. You know, and that let me know where I kind of stood in relationship to my peers that, you know what, hey, maybe I am smart enough yeah. to do that. Don't sell so. yourself short, you know, instead of being the PT, <laughs> go the extra mile and uh, and be the medical doctor. And you, yeah. you spoke about um, sports and, you know, you got into yeah. taping ankles and being around athletes. And that was sort right. of the genesis of maybe medicine. When did rugby become an affinity sure. of yours because it's not you know it's not like there's um recreation yeah. leagues where rugby is for kids i know yeah it's a, well at least certainly not in upstate new york if you live in the city or you know you go to a private prep school or something they they may have that but up in upstate new york it was you know my school we were so small we only had a soccer team so i did soccer i wrestled in the winter and ran track in the spring Mm -hmm. So, uh, my, no, my, my dad's English. And so actually both my parents were 
university professors. The farming was kind of a side kind of hobby of theirs. Um, my dad grew up in the slums of uh, England uh, during the war, during World War II, and I think he had always like seen the English countryside as this place he wanted to live. So my mom was an American. They got married. And uh, so they, they, they both had a passion for the farm. Uh, but but my dad was English, and so, you know, he couldn't relate to football, but he had played rugby okay. growing up. And so that kind of intrigued me because I love I have I loved football. Yes. And it was like one of the things that I missed at my school was that they didn't have football. And rugby was this tackle sport that was kind of like football. <laughs> so, uh, you know, both my parents were professors. They're anthropologists. And they, they did their work in East Africa, um, in Kenya. Okay. So uh, during the summers. And so one year, my dad and mom, actually for a couple of years, they got some time off from university to go spend some time in Kenya. And during that time, I went and lived with them. Took a, you know, did uh, my sophomore year in high school. I went to school in Kenya. And Kenya being a former English colony, uh, British colony, uh, rugby, soccer, all those things were very much part of the, the school sports teams. And uh, so I started, I had a chance to play rugby, did, played, did really well. So I, you know, I played high school rugby, I played club rugby, and uh, even had the opportunity to play for their junior national team, their under-23 Kenya national team. So Very cool. was like, I, I was like immersed in rugby. So it, mm -hmm. was, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, that brings us to um, the accident that you have. You are in, I believe it's medical school. You're, you're two and a half years into metal, medical school at this time, and you're playing rugby. Take us through the day that changed your life. Sure, sure. So, well, you know, I, I played a little rugby in college at Santa Barbara. And uh, so a uh, friend of mine, uh, somebody who was a, a year behind me, had started up a, a rugby club at Einstein because uh, rugby is kind of popular with the medical schools, too. I, I think it's kind of the medical schools will sometimes, you know, model themselves after British kind of traditions and rugby is one of those. And so the New York medical schools had rugby teams. Okay. So Albert Einstein, which is where I went to medical school, uh, they, uh, Pete Shaw was his name, Peter. He started up a rugby team and I joined him. We were kind of the ones, there was a few guys there who had played rugby. And so, you know, we had this core of people who had some experience and then a lot of people with passion and enthusiasm, but no experience. And, so we put together this ragtag team and uh, did actually pretty well. I mean, I think we all meshed. We had some great players and uh, that first year and then second year, uh, things were going great. And, uh, you know, and then it was uh, April 11th in 1992. It was, as you said, it was towards the, really towards the end of my third year of medical school. Okay. Um, and, uh, things were starting to fall into place. I really kind of felt like for once in my life, I knew what direction I was going mm. and my career was set. 
And then, uh, you know, we had this big game against our, our rivals at the time, uh, Cornell Medical School. And uh, they beat us last time, but we played them tough. And, uh, and you know, so, uh, and, and so that's, that's the day it happened. It was one of those kind of April days where, you know, the day before is 80 or 90 degrees because spring is just there. Sure. And then the next day you have snow flurries. Oh boy. And uh so <laughs> oh, wow. it was kind of a cold, drizzly, rainy day, but uh you know, we were all pumped. We were having a great game. We were ahead, we had the lead, and then, you know, I saw one of their players get the ball and he was a big guy and he just started sprinting towards the goal line, the touch line, and uh I just felt like I had to stop him. And so I'm sprinting at full speed and I hit him at high speed and he's a big guy moving right. at high speed and I hit him with my head instead of my shoulder. You know, I kind of speared him yes. instead of tackling him properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you know, you're tired and you get a little sloppy. Absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, and that, and down I went and, uh, you know, I was quite a shock uh, to say the least. Mm. Now what is, you know, I ask everybody this question and, and I ask myself the question, what was, you know, the first thing that went through my mind when I had my injury was that I just felt complete numbness. I felt nothing from, right. from my neck down. I mean, my head, everything was fine. I could, uh, I could speak and I could, you know, breathe. It wasn't the greatest, but I just felt nothing from, from the neck down. What was the right. first thing that you felt initially? Well, there's a couple of things that I felt. So I... I, so, uh, well, one was like that it happened and I felt like I could breathe, but it felt like somebody was sitting on my chest. Mm -hmm. So like if you're ever a kid and you're wrestling with a bunch of friends and they all pile on top of you and you just can't breathe. Yes. That's exactly what I felt like. And that's because my rib muscles and my abdominal muscles were paralyzed. Mm -hmm. So I could breathe. Okay. But, but it, but, but I wasn't getting the same depth of breath that I was used to. Yes. The, the other thing was, you know, so I, obviously I couldn't move. Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of in my brain and it's like, Oh, I got to get up. Just, you know, I want to shake this off. Help me stand up. Let me shake this off. And as you and I both know, uh, there's no shaking this off. And if anything, <laughs> trying to shake it up and move yourself after an injury like that. That's the last thing you should be doing. Exactly. You should be staying absolutely still. Yeah. But, uh, so that's, that's, so the ability, you know, I could breathe, but I, I felt like somebody was sitting on my chest. And then the other thing that I kind of noticed was a little later during the course of the day as I'm in the ambulance is, uh, this burning kind of feeling from where, where my sensation had been, had been replaced with this burning. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of as if my brain was like, what the hell's going on? And trying to make sense of uh, not getting the signals Mm -hmm. anymore or, or that the signals were different now, you know, were, 
know, so something was getting through, but the brain wasn't making sense of it. Yes. Now, do you think how much of the fact that you had had almost, as you said, three years of medical school under your belt, um, did that sort of make you feel heartened that a recovery from this sort of an injury would be possible? Or did it scare you knowing that, you know, once you have a spinal cord injury, that really not too much is going to be the same from the level of your injury down? You know, I don't know, you know, so even though I had done a rehab rotation uh, uh, about five or six months before, and I had worked, I had had one patient with spinal cord injury. And so I had seen them and I kind of documented the, the improvements that they were experienced, but it, I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it, until you have that this injury, you or you have worked with people with spinal cord injury for a long time. There's there's no way you can fathom uh, what it's like. And I think you know, for me, it was like I just I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I knew you know paralysis, but but to to that degree, that level of knowledge, I had no idea. Yeah. So felt felt completely alone, right? Um, because you know me and my family, because it's like, what, what is this? Yeah, we're not in um, Kansas anymore, right? One of those. Yeah, yeah. Now my medical training did help me in many ways because, you know, I, I there were other aspects of my injury that I could try to figure out. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and so and and also. Uh, I was, it was kind of like I'm part of a, a group. I'm part of a tribe. I'm part of a, you know, a village when you're in the medical community. And I think, you know, people, everybody, anybody I encountered, whether it be the, the radiology techs, the ER people, the nurses, it was kind of like, oh my goodness, this is a, this is a person in the medical field. Yeah. You know, that, that could be me. I think maybe you know there but for the grace of God go I. Yes. And and so there's there's more of a connection. So I think you know and and then also since I am in the medical field they may say well you know you may be familiar with some of this and so they would they would probably talk to me more than they might um somebody who's not in the medical field. Sure. Because it's kind of like well let me tell you what's going on and uh and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, and, and so, and I think, I don't know if I really harbored any illusions that I might actually walk. It was kind of like, well, let me just take this one day at a time. You know, I'm, I'm up for a challenge and I'm just, whatever I get, I get, and I'm just going to keep pushing and make the most of it. Now, following, Um, following that year of rehabilitation that you did, Take us through your decision to return to the classroom, albeit now in a wheelchair. How different sure. was that entire experience from then being uh, an able-bodied student? Oh, well, it was vastly different. I mean, before my injury, you know, I told you I grew up doing a lot of things by by my hands. I love doing procedural things. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I went to the medical school I went to and worked in the hospitals I worked was they were the city hospitals where you could do stuff. And so suddenly to be somebody who like could rely on their hands to do just about anything, 
and to be relatively good at it to no longer be able to do it and have to to get assistance. It was kind of like, it was like as if God hated me, had was mocking me. Right. To some extent. Sure. It's kind of like, uh, you can do this, but you can't use your hands, Trevor. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so, uh, so anyway, so, so it was learning how to use my brain more to direct people, not to not get frustrated. Cause uh, you know, it, it's, much easier when you do it yourself when you're trying to direct somebody it's much more challenging sure and uh so there was that um you know i mean i think there's a couple of things there were pros and cons i mean certainly from a, the patients people i would encounter it was like they i was part of their their tribe it's like wow this guy this you're a doctor yeah. wow well you're you're a patient too so they would connect with me uh, before my injury. They treated me much different, even though I felt like I was the same guy. I thought I was the same nice, easygoing guy. But they would look at me and they'd see this guy, blonde hair, you know, whatever. And they'd just assume that I was like some arrogant doctor. <laughs> and, uh, and I always thought I kind of maintained my upstate humility. And uh, the wheelchair just kind of helped break that barrier. Right. And so, uh, so I was accepted by them. Um, but, but it, the the thing that really helped me was, um, I went through those first three years as an able-bodied person. So, and do getting that third year, which it was my big clinical year, you know, my surgery, my obstetrics gynecology pediatrics, internal medicine, all these things, that kind of experience, at least initial experience as an able-bodied person made my transition much easier. Thank goodness I, you I, had gotten that under your belt, right? Yeah, and I really handed, I mean, my fourth year, which is what I went back for, really was kind of Einstein, Albert Einstein, and I can't sing the praises of the medical school enough because they were there from day one, basically saying, whatever you need, Trevor, we're going to help you figure it out because we want you back in school. In whatever role that will be, we'll help you figure it out. That's awesome. And, um, you know, and so my fourth year was kind of trying to figure it out. And so, uh, and, and the thing that's nice about medical school is you, you kind of pay for four years and if it takes you a little longer, the extra time is is free. So, so I actually stayed. Uh, you know, when I realized that rehab was what I was interested in, I, I stayed longer to kind of focus on getting myself better, so that I could hopefully pursue that field. Absolutely. But I, I really have to hand it. I mean, there are people. I have met people who had their spinal cord injury either while in high school or college. And they, or I mean, I really, somebody who was in high school and then they go to college with their injury and then go to medical school. Uh, there's a friend of mine who I met. Um, I was back at Einstein and he was applying to schools. His name's Jim Post, Dr. Jim Post. He's at the VA um, here, the Bronx VA. 
I really just, I am so impressed that, you know, I'm inspired, you know, I, I don't want to use the term inspired, but just, you know, he, I mean, just his drive, you know, and he may be somebody to bring on your quadcast. Yeah, that would be but, great. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, because he really, he had to battle a lot of discrimination because, you know, people are like, how can you? Because he's a higher level injury than I am. Wow. So I, I think my presence at least opens Einstein to thinking about it. And Jim, Jim is like, I'm, you know, uh, Jim is a very bright guy mm -hmm. and a very driven guy. Mm -hmm. And he, he was able to work it out and succeed and excel. That's amazing. And uh, I really have to, you know, and, and I don't know if I could have done that myself. Mm -hmm. um, at least I had my foot in the door, so to speak. I am the school supporting me a lot and, you know, strong vocational counselors pushing me and and my doctors, my team of doctors at Mount Sinai, everybody really kind of cheering me on. And if I didn't have that, I could have easily slipped through the cracks. No doubt. That was yeah. huge. Now tell us about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. After your injury, did that become a place that you thought maybe, hey, I could work there? Or was there uh, an interesting story about how you found yourself at Kessler? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, I actually, uh, so I did my rehab at Mount Sinai. And while I was at Mount Sinai, one of the doctors there, Dr. Chris Ragnarsson, who has since retired, uh introduced me to the model systems and that's this spinal cord injury model systems and what it is it's the concept of it's a model system of care and these centers um have a team of experts uh whose goal it's you know so it's not only physicians it's occupational therapists physical therapists everybody who's focuses spinal cord injury and helping people get back on with their lives, get back out in the community and, and back on. Um, and then following up with them to just take care of any health complications. So it really kind of opened up a new angle of rehabilitation that I had never really seen before. Right. That, that is kind of the rehab doctor uh, as an expert, you know, really impacting somebody's life. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who had their life absolutely turned upside down and, and playing a big role. I also like the team idea, you know, that it's not, it's not like the physician is God. You know, it's everybody is equally important in this team concept. Yes. And so as I, you know, after, you know, spending the extra time at Einstein and with the encouragement of Dr. Ragnarsson and my, my, my other doctor, Dr. Adam Stein, I started looking at rehab and I knew I really wanted to focus on spinal cord injury. And so I started looking at places that had spinal cord injury model systems. And so, you know, there's the big names like, you know, Rehab Institute of Chicago, um, University of Washington, you know, some of these places, uh, you know, that, that are big kind of university or other settings. And I saw it at Mount Sinai, of course. And then there was this place in New Jersey that I'd never heard of called Kessler. Right. Kessler Institute. So I was like, you know what? What the heck? You know, let me, let me uh, send my application into them. And, uh, and I got an interview. And I really, I mean, talk about what an amazing program. 
I mean, from top to bottom. So, so it's kind of a small world. Actually, Dr. Kirschbaum had done his residency at Mount Sinai, uh, had been good, had been the Dr. Ragnarsson had been his mentor. Um, Adam Stein was a good friend of his, uh, cause they were about the same age. Um, and, uh, so it was kind of this small world and heading the program. So Dr. Kirschbaum, you know, that was the first time I ever met him. Right. He was the residency director uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of my point person, but heading the rehab program is this giant, both literally and figuratively of a man, Dr. Joel DeLisa, who kind of wrote the book on rehabilitation. And okay. so, a uh, very strong academic program. Um, really, research. He viewed research as critical mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, uh, medicine and rehabilitation medicine. And you know, growing up with my parents, I uh, I, I saw the value of research. And so, you know, I was like, ah, you know what? I, I would like to kind of do this combination of clinical and research. And so I just think we hit it off. I had, you know, great interview with Dr. Delisa, you know, uh, Dr. John Bach, who's uh, uh, one of the leading authorities on, you know, respiratory care and people with uh, neurological disorders. He's over at University Hospital in Newark. And then, uh, and then this guy, Dr. Kirschbaum, who I met for the first time, and yes. it was just, you know, talk, I mean, well, you know this, what a nice guy. And it just, I, you know, I fell in love with the program. Um, you know, I just, I saw the academics, um, and plus it was here on the East coast. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't know what I thought about New Jersey, but you know what? West Orange grows on you. Forget so about it. It's Jersey, yeah. baby. Jersey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what exit? So. I just had to learn what exit off the parkway. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know what? It was so true. Yes. It was so true. So now, you know? doctor, your title is Director of the Centers for Spinal Cord Injury Research and Outcomes and Assessment Research at Kessler Foundation. Please tell our listeners just what that means and what you do on a daily basis. Sure. Sure. So so my my finding, Kessler, was because of the clinical aspect of it, right? And so the way residency works is you you get your spot secured uh, a year ahead of time. And then you go and do uh, a general, like, medical uh, internship for a year. And it could be surgery or things like that. And so so I stayed at Einstein. I, I did my internship because uh, I was an, I was an MD at that point, And this is so I can become licensed. Um, and I, I get, you know, much more intense clinical exposure. I did it at Jacoby. And that was a mistake in hindsight because the city hospitals, it was one thing when I'm able-bodied, but, you know, with my injury, it was just, uh, it was too much. Sure. And, I mean, they, 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 they adapted the program. They did what they could. But, you know, resources at a city hospital are limited. They could only do so much. And, and I was still trying to do things like an able-bodied person. So I was pushing around the hospital, like mm. pushing myself too hard. 
And uh, I started running into pressure injury, pressure sore problems. So by the time I finished my first year, my clinical internship year, I was a little bit of a wreck, a train, physical train wreck yeah. with a pressure injury. And so it became apparent that I just I would not be able to start my residency at Kessler, my rehab residency that summer. So, uh, so you know, Dr. Kirschbaum, you know, held the spot for me. I, I took some time off to try to heal the wound, you know, get back in the gym, work out, get myself in better shape. And during that time, Dr. Kirschbaum said, well, you know what? You know, maybe maybe you want to do a little research. Um, that'll keep your mind active, keep you busy. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I worked with uh, somebody there. Um, got a little, I got a training uh, fellowship grant, um, and so I came to Kessler and was doing a fellowship, a research fellowship. And uh, what was nice about that was I was able to focus on something I liked within spinal cord injury. And also, at the same time, kind of sit in on all the classes with the residents and participate in all the different things with the residents. Mm-hmm. So it was keeping my mind active. And, you know, I kept going down research and, you know, I'd be getting grants or doing other things beyond there. And at a point, you know, every year, Dr. Kirschbaum and I would have a discussion, you know, well, is this the year that I do go you know, stop the research and go into the residency. And I think at a point, Dr. Kirschbaum was like, you know what? I mean, what is it? You know, I mean, he's a great mentor because he's, he's like trying to find out what makes you happy. What's best for you. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like, well, I get the impression that really kind of research is the direction where you want to go. And the way medicine is going, you know, medicine is tough because it's like, you got to see people, you got to be fast, you got to do all these things. And so, you know, I kind of carved out a niche in, uh, in research. And he's like, maybe, maybe you, this is where you should study. You found your calling. And yeah. And then he was absolutely right. So, so I, I joined as a research scientist in, in spinal cord injury research. What year and then, was that, doctor? You know, Put a year on that. Well, let's see. It would have been, let's see, in 97 was when I started at Kessler. Wow. And then I think I started as a scientist there in 2000. And then I think in 2010 was, you know, I was still there and there was an opportunity. The former director of uh, spinal cord injury research uh, had moved on and I, I was covering for an interim until they could hire somebody. And uh, after a while, they I think they were like, well, you know what? This guy's doing an okay job. <laughs> you know, may, maybe we'll keep him. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, and uh, so, so that's that's how I became the director. Terrific. Um, yeah, and uh, I, the Center for Outcomes and Assessment Research, is a title I inherited from my predecessor, um, because he he really was kind of an outcomes guy. Uh, he was less of a spinal cord injury guy. I was kind of like the spinal cord injury guy. Dr. Hirschbaum and I were kind of filling in that gap. But uh, not to say, I mean, that he hasn't carved himself out an area in spinal cord injury research. But but he was really an outcomes and assessment guy. And that's 
you know, look at those measures on, you know, basically trying to measure how people improve. Right. Is there anything, develop. is there anything that you're working on now that, that has you excited for, uh, for the disabled community that you could share yeah, with I us? Think, yeah, there's, there's kind of two areas and then they, and this kind of just shows the, the breadth of our research. Um, you know, you would think a guy with spinal cord injury, I'd be gunning for the cure. And really what interests me is kind of the complications that keep people with spinal cord injury from doing what they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then, and then also what are the things, the challenges that keep them from just getting on with their lives? So there are two studies. One is uh, uh, we're starting to do some studies in this area of what's called regenerative medicine or regenerative rehabilitation. And we're not doing it so much for curing the spinal cord injury itself, but for some of the complications. So uh, using some of these techniques to address shoulder overuse injuries. Okay. So, um, and then seeing some really great results with that, in the, like early on. And we're starting to expand that program. And, uh, you know, during my early days at Kessler, I had the opportunity to meet a Another great mentor, Dr. Jerry Malanga, who's a sports medicine doctor. Uh, he's a rehab doctor and uh, very interested in kind of uh, what what can we do to minimize having people have to get surgery for orthopedic kind of things. Like so, because if you think about it, if you rely on your upper limbs with a spinal cord injury, if you get surgery on your shoulder, uh, you're, that lays you up you know, and you can't do anything. You're out. Yeah. So, yeah. So these, you know, we were trying to look at, you know, he's helping me kind of push the envelope on treatments that, you know, aside from physical therapy, what can we do? You know, so it is combined, you know, it's doing these treatments in combination with physical therapy. Mm -hmm. That's why they call it regenerative rehabilitation. Um, cause you can't do each in isolation. Right. Um, and so there's that study, and that's, you know, seeing great results with that. Um, and then this other area is employment after spinal cord injury. Okay. And, uh, and that's, you know, uh, a study that, you know, we had gotten funded uh, uh, several years ago from the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation. And really what it was, you know, back in the day, back when I was first injured, you know, I was in the hospital for five months. And now people are in the hospital for one or two months and it's, you really barely have a chance to get your, to, to even begin to comprehend the injury. Sure. And, and back then when I was first injured, you know, I had a vocational counselor and they would work, they worked with me while I was in the hospital. And then afterwards, early on to kind of just say, you know what, you can get back to work. How do you do this? You know, get back to medical school. And and for somebody with spinal cord injuries, you kind of think, well, your life's over. You know, how, how am I going to be able to work again? You know, it's like, how? And, and it, I mean, that's an understandable feeling because nothing, nothing will prepares you for spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. You know, you spend all your life learning how to be able-bodied when you're a baby you know, to whenever your injury happens. And then suddenly in a, in a second, your whole life is turned upside down. Yes. That, and, and they kind of say, you got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, so that's where the model systems and, 
And currently at Kessler, we have Adria De Simone, who is our vocational resource facilitator. The best. And it's really kind of meeting with newly injured people and saying, look, you know, I know this is overwhelming, but I'm here, I'm a resource, and I'll be following you for the next two years. And at some point, you know, let's let's have a conversation about, you know, returning to work or or what are your goals, you know, so that you're not just sitting at home. Sure. You know, because if you think about it, I mean, that's work is kind of what defines us in it many is. ways. Yep. You know, it's kind of like, well, what do you do? Yep. You know, it's like, are you married? Do you have kids? What do you do? Everyone needs and, a purpose in life, right, doctor? Absolutely. You yeah. know, and, and I kind of joke because... Uh, um, you know, for anybody who's been on uh, Social Security, right, um, disability or Medicaid or anything like that, if you make above a certain amount of money each month, well, they Social Security considers you, you know, no longer kind of technically disabled. Yes. And and so I I, I make a joke that well you know what employment's the cure for spinal cord injury because <laughs> you know if I'm working then Social Security is saying well you know we don't we don't need to provide you know the the medical services and because you're you're technically kind of no longer disabled they're going to cut you loose. Book. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I'm going, yeah, I'm going know, through all that right now with Adria. I am uh, really trying to get back out there. Um, and we're going through all of that now where she has to know, okay, if you're going to work a job, how much are you going to make an hour? And then you have so many months that you can accrue uh, like trial work months. And so it's very confusing, but she does a terrific job. I had her on for, uh, yeah. for a previous episode. Doctor, I know that you were in lectures and meetings all day long, and I don't want to hold you up for too much longer. I had two more quick questions. One, sure. Well, actually, let me just add one other thing. Okay, John. sure. And I, you know, to what you were saying, and I, I think you know, people, people with spinal cord injury really, really have to. They have to be their their strongest advocate and identify people who can help them. And you know, I certainly know from the employment perspective. Like I've had Social Security tell me things because they, 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 they you know, they're kind of it's a cookie cutter thing that they're trying to apply to everybody with a disability. Yes. And and there there are exceptions. So you you can make money. You can, you know, as long as you kind of know you need somebody to help you navigate it. Mm-hmm. You can make above like kind of the thresholds because there may be things that you're doing, whether it be driving or expenses that you have that are deductible. Yes. That count towards those 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 monthly things. And so that you could actually be making much more because if you you know, because it, you know, if Medicaid weren't paying for this, you would have to pay. And and so and people don't realize that. And so having somebody like Adria who just knows the system, I mean it, it's just it, it, I, you know, we we really are lucky at Kessler because she she has such expertise and can help people, and and I I just feel like that that is something that can help people 
get back on with their lives. There's and no I, doubt. So, yeah. She's yeah. an amazing advocate for, yeah. for the disabled community. Um, yeah. I know there was a, there was a gal that had the job before when I was first an inpatient, uh, Teresa Keegan was the vocational director and yeah. she was the same way. She did an amazing job for everybody. Doc, yeah, I wonder, you really, you really need that. You really need somebody to help you. And that's the thing of the team, right? Yeah. Listen, they're, they're, if you don't there, know, you, you don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, COVID-19 has enveloped the globe, and I know yeah. that I'm sure it has eaten into um, the work that you do, your research, but you know, yeah. you also fall into one of the high-risk categories like I do after sure. having spinal cord injury. You mentioned earlier that your vital lung capacity is not what it used to be. How has it affected not only your work, but your daily life? Oh, well, you know, I just, I, uh, boy, that, that could be its own podcast. I tell you, I know. Yeah. um, you know, I just, you know, my heart goes out to, so if I, I, I think about things, so from a, from a practical work point of view, of course, you know, I'm in the research side of things. And so research is kind of a risk benefit. And so, you know, when we were in the midst of the pandemic, the risks were higher than the benefits. So, you know, from a research thing, we shut our studies down. We were able to do the survey-based ones that didn't have face-to-face patient contact. But uh, we we all kind of worked from home. So, you know, from March March fifteenth, pretty much to June fifteenth, I was working remotely. Yeah. Um, you know, which is its own weird kind of feeling. Um. You know, but I just, my heart goes out to people who had spinal cord injury during that time because, you know, they would, they were coming into units and the hospital had to kind of limit the number of people who could be in the room. So you might be just one or two people per room. Um, and then family members couldn't necessarily visit. Uh, therapists were providing therapy. In the rooms, they weren't bringing people into the gym. So all these things that kind of got me through the early stages of my injury, you know, that social support network that my family, my friends who were packing my room every night, you know, there to, to lift me up. You know, somebody who's injured now didn't have that. You know, they were isolated. And then... You know, being in a gym, seeing other people with spinal cord injury doing therapy and wondering, hey, how's that guy doing it? Because you, you learn from other people. Yes. And so so I just, you know, I really, so just the impact that this had on newly injured people, uh, I just, I, I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, and then the challenges, you know, so not only is it short length of stay, it's this weird kind of time to be in a hospital. No doubt. Um, you know, and then, you know, when this first happened, you know, I think within the spinal cord injury medicine field, I think we were terrified for people with spinal cord injury because, as you point out, it's a high-risk population. Uh, you know, if we get the flu, you know, somebody with a higher-level injury can't take the same deep breath or cough as effectively as somebody who doesn't have a spinal cord injury. And so, you know, if you get a cough, the flu, pneumonia, 
uh, it can really take over because you're just not able to clear the secretion. So I think, you know, this being a respiratory illness, we were terrified that people with spinal cord injury were just going to be flocking into emergency rooms with pneumonia, you know, COVID-related pneumonia or complications from Mm -hmm. COVID. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, at least with people I've talked to, and that's Dr. Kirschbaum and then colleagues at Mount Sinai, those out on Long Island uh, who are spinal cord injury doctors uh, who had, you know, relatively large, uh, you know, patient, outpatient populations, they really didn't see a lot of their people coming into the hospital with complications. Yeah. Um, people may get it, but the symptoms weren't as bad as you see in some able-bodied people. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, somebody may say, well, you know, I've got these symptoms, but I, I thought it was a urinary tract infection. Sure. I didn't even think, you know, I didn't have any coughing mm-hmm. or, or if you had coughing, uh, you know, it was relatively short-lived. Um, you didn't have to go to the hospital and be admitted to an intensive care unit. And so so you would have these people who maybe one person in a family or a spouse with spinal cord injury would would have very mild symptoms or no symptoms, and then their loved one or somebody in their kind of extended family would get very severe symptoms with some even dying. Yeah. So it was it was kind of interesting to see how it maybe we're not quite sure why. Is it because people with spinal cord injury were kind of like, I'm not going out. <laughs> you know, so they were they weren't go you know, trying to go to restaurants or do anything crazy. They were just, you know, staying home um and and sheltering, you know, staying in place. Yes. Um or is there something about, you know, we, we, we sometimes, you know, we have an impaired uh, immune response sometimes to infections. Mm-hmm. And that can certainly put us at risk for things. But we, we may not have had the same severe response that others had. Maybe it's, because of it. maybe it's yeah. the baclofen that we're all on. Maybe that's the uh, wonder maybe. drug. Right? Yeah, there you go. Everybody's on well, baclofen. Oh my yeah, goodness. I, I joke, I joke, and I don't want to jinx myself, but I joke, you know what, people? I push my wheelchair. It's like I walk on my hands. Yeah. I'm pushing a wheelchair over streets and through a hospital. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, and, and I'm amazed that I don't get sick. It's true. And maybe, maybe there's, I don't know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, and and it, it could be that I just, I didn't have the same kind of level of response that an able-bodied person would have. Yes. And so that, that actually worked to me and others with spinal cord injury. That may have worked to our advantage. Yes. And doctor, <laughs> lastly, uh, a question that I ask all of my fellow SCIers and that I answer myself is if I could snap my fingers right now, 
and you were completely able-bodied again, what would be the first thing that you would do? Now, for me, I would get my uh, my Walkman out, or that's back from the uh, from the eighties. I don't have Walkman yeah, yeah. anymore. I would yeah. get my uh, my earbuds. I guess I would right. lace up my sneakers and I'd go out for a nice ten yeah. mile run to get a good sweat going. What would be the yeah. first thing that you would do? Oh, John, the the list is endless. Yeah. You know, and so some of them I can share with the listeners and you and others I'll keep to myself. Mm-hmm. But uh but certainly, you know, one of the things I kind of miss is uh standing up and uh feeling the shower. Yeah. You know, water hitting my skin. You know, like you said that that run or you know, taking a shower after a nice long run yes. or you know, doing laps, you know, swimming uh, you know, feeling just you, the, the feeling of the sheets against my skin, you know, you know, on a hot evening, you crawl into bed and you got the cotton sheet against your skin and just that kind of, you know, sure. and, and just that feeling. Simple pleasures. Just the simple things, you know, uh, being able to, to hug my girlfriend instead of having her kind of have to lean in to hug me or sit on my lap. Absolutely. You know, that I'm able to kind of lean over and give her a big hug and pick her up like I used to be able to. Yeah, open you know? a car door for, for your lady friend. Yeah, right? you know, actually, you know, subtle things. Work on my own car, you yeah. know, it's like these little things. You know, throw the ball and run with my dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you know, now I've learned how to do these things. Sure. I mean, there's some, you know, so that I, I try, that I'm, trying to get back on to my life as close as it was before my injury. Mm-hmm. But there certainly are many things that I miss. Yes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, like it's, it's hard to pick the first thing. It, I is. Really... it is. There's so many of them. And doctor, I want to thank you first for coming on. I know we were trying to put this together for a while and I know you're uh, an uber busy man. And again, I want to thank you for first of all, coming on to the quadcast and telling us your story, which is inspiring off the charts. Uh, And I also want to thank you on behalf of the disabled community for all that you do for and with us. Thanks, John. And again, thanks for having me on your show. And, uh, you know, this really was a lot of fun. So thank you. So happy I was finally able to get Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson on the quadcast. I certainly hope you found his story of perseverance as inspiring as I do. Again, thank you, doctor, for all you have done and continue to do on behalf of the SCI world. As for next week, well, get your motor running, head out on the highway, looking for adventure and whatever comes our way. Yes, it's my On the Road Again episode of the podcast. My guests will include Richard Neat, Certified Driver Rehabilitation Specialist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and Peter Ruprecht, President at DriveMaster Co. DriveMaster has been in business since 1952 and is one of the oldest family-owned and operated adaptive mobility equipment dealers in the United States. We will learn exactly what it takes in order to get certified behind the wheel again following a catastrophic injury and hear what type of adaptations and modifications can be done to a vehicle in order for someone to safely drive again. Thank you to Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City. And on behalf of all of the good folks here at the Quadcast, I am John McAlevey and I thank you for your time. I don't